Welcome. This is the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Dr. Lisa Johnson. This week, February 15, 2024, we feature articles on frexalimab in multiple sclerosis, e-cigarettes for smoking cessation, cefepime tanaborbactam for complicated UTI, and the treatment of Wallman's disease in an infant. Review articles on treatment-resistant depression in older adults and on Bechet syndrome, a case report of a man with fevers, and perspective articles on ethical issues in safety net health systems, on secondary cancers after CAR T-cell therapy, and on being worried about white cell counts. A New Clinical Decisions addresses primary spontaneous pneumothorax. This feature about a man who has had a spontaneous pneumothorax offers a case vignette accompanied by two essays, one supporting insertion of a chest tube and the other recommending following the patient closely as an outpatient. We want to know what you think. Visit NEJM.org to vote. Inhibition of CD40L with Frexalimab in Multiple Sclerosis by Patrick Vermersch from the Centre Hospitalier Universitaire de Lille, France, and co-authors. The CD40-CD40L co-stimulatory pathway regulates the initiation of adaptive and innate immune responses. Clinical and pathological observations have indicated the involvement of the CD40-CD40L pathway in multiple sclerosis and its association with disease progression. Frexalimab is a second-generation anti-CD40L monoclonal antibody. In this Phase two trial, 129 participants with relapsing multiple sclerosis were assigned in a 4 to 4 to 1 to 1 ratio to receive 1,200 milligrams of Frexalimab administered intravenously every four weeks. 300 milligrams of frexalimab administered subcutaneously every two weeks, or the matching placebos for each active treatment. At week 12, the adjusted mean number of new gadolinium-enhancing T1-weighted brain lesions on MRI was 0.2 in the group that received 1,200 milligrams of frexalimab intravenously and 0.3 in the group that received 300 milligrams of frexalimab subcutaneously, as compared with 1.4 in the pooled placebo group. The rate ratios as compared with placebo were 0.11 in the 1,200 milligram group and 0.21 in the 300 milligram group. Results for the secondary imaging endpoints were generally in the same direction as those for the primary analysis. The most common adverse events, those that occurred in at least 5% of the participants in any group, were COVID-19 and headaches. In this Phase two trial involving participants with multiple sclerosis, inhibition of CD40L with frexalimab had an effect that generally favored a greater reduction in the number of new gadolinium-enhancing T1-weighted lesions at week 12 as compared with placebo. Larger and longer trials are needed to determine the long-term efficacy and safety of frexalimab in persons with multiple sclerosis.
Stephen Hauser from the University of California, San Francisco, writes in an editorial that the results of the trial by Vermersch and colleagues appear clear, although the clinical significance is uncertain. Clear because there was an unambiguous benefit with regard to short-term MRI outcomes in patients who received frexalimab as compared with those who received placebo and because a generally low level of MRI activity persisted during an additional 12-week open-label extension period. The depletion of circulating B-cells with the use of anti-CD20 monoclonal antibodies has become a mainstay of treatment in multiple sclerosis. Their rapid onset of effect has indicated that B-cell antigen presentation and cytokine secretion, rather than antibody production, are likely to be responsible for their benefit. A situation that emphasizes the central role of B-cell antigen presentation to T-cells and the effects on B-cell cytokines as mediators of tissue damage. Highly effective therapies against relapsing multiple sclerosis with the anti-CD20 agents or the alpha-4-beta-1 integrin inhibitor, natalizumab, have shown that when relapses are prevented, a progression independent of disease activity is uncovered. This progression was previously obscured by fluctuating neurologic findings that were due to relapses and partial remissions. Thus, progression is present in most, if not all, patients with multiple sclerosis, regardless of where they are in the disease continuum. In addition to marked effects against relapses, B-cell-based therapies provide partial benefits against progression, a finding that suggests that removal of B-cells may also reduce microglial activation and neurodegeneration, components of the pathologic features of progressive multiple sclerosis. Although the current trial by Vermersch was neither designed nor powered to assess benefits against progressive multiple sclerosis, progression is where the true clinical value of frexalimab and its place in the therapeutic armamentarium against multiple sclerosis will need to be defined. Electronic Nicotine Delivery Systems for Smoking Cessation by Reto Auer from the Institute of Primary Healthcare, Bern, Switzerland, and co-authors. Electronic nicotine delivery systems, also called e-cigarettes, are used by some tobacco smokers to assist with quitting. Evidence regarding the efficacy and safety of these systems is needed. In this trial, 1,246 adults who were smoking at least five tobacco cigarettes per day and who wanted to set a quit date were randomly assigned to an intervention group which received free e-cigarettes and e-liquids, standard of care smoking cessation counseling, and optional, not free, nicotine replacement therapy or to a control group, which received standard counseling and a voucher, which they could use for any purpose, including nicotine replacement therapy. At six months, the primary outcome of the percentage of participants with biochemically validated continuous abstinence from tobacco smoking was 28.9% in the intervention group and 16.3% in the control group. 
The percentage of participants who abstained from smoking in the seven days before the six-month visit was 59.6% in the intervention group and 38.5% in the control group. But the percentage who abstained from any nicotine use was 20.1% in the intervention group and 33.7% in the control group. Serious adverse events occurred in 4% of participants in the intervention group and in 5% of those in the control group. Adverse events occurred in 43.7% and 36.7% of participants, respectively. The addition of e-cigarettes to standard smoking cessation counseling resulted in greater abstinence from tobacco use among smokers than smoking cessation counseling alone. In an editorial, Nancy Rigotti from Massachusetts General Hospital, Boston, writes that the trial by our and colleagues showed that adding e-cigarettes to standard-of-care counseling improved smoking cessation rates without worsening health risks over six months. These findings are consistent with those in the 2024 update of the Cochrane Systematic Review of e-cigarettes for smoking cessation. Its meta-analyses of randomized trials showed that e-cigarettes were more effective than nicotine replacement therapy or behavioral counseling and caused minimal short-term harm. Trials are needed to compare e-cigarettes with varenicline and to evaluate the marginal value of adding e-cigarettes to currently marketed smoking cessation medications. The trial conducted by our and colleagues and the 2024 Cochrane Systematic Review show the growth in evidence regarding the efficacy and safety of e-cigarettes for smoking cessation since the journal first published a randomized trial testing this question five years ago. The evidence now supports a strong conclusion that e-cigarettes are tools that clinicians can use to help adults stop smoking, especially those who are unable to quit with current evidence-based treatments. E-cigarettes are neither completely harmless nor magic bullets that help every tobacco smoker quit, but they can and do help some. It is now time for the medical community to acknowledge this progress and add e-cigarettes to the smoking cessation toolkit. Clinicians should be prepared to have a risk-benefit discussion about e-cigarettes with their patients who smoke and recommend a trial of the products in appropriate situations. U.S. public health agencies and professional medical societies should reconsider their cautious positions on e-cigarettes for smoking cessation. The evidence has brought e-cigarettes to a tipping point. The burden of tobacco-related disease is too big for potential solutions such as e-cigarettes to be ignored. Cefepime taniborbactum in Complicated Urinary Tract Infection by Florian Wagenlehner from the University Hospital Geisen and Marburg, Geisen, Germany, and co-authors. Carbapenem-resistant Enterobacterales species and multidrug-resistant Pseudomonas aeruginosa are global public health threats. 
Cefepime tanaborbactam is an investigational beta-lactam and beta-lactamase inhibitor combination with activity against Enterobacterales species and Pseudomonas, expressing serine and metallo-beta-lactamases. In this Phase three trial, 661 hospitalized adults with complicated urinary tract infection, UTI, including acute pyelonephritis, were randomly assigned in a 2-to-1 ratio to receive intravenous cefepime tanaborbactam or mirapenem every 8 hours for 7 days. This duration could be extended to 14 days in patients with bacteremia. Composite success occurred in 70.6% of patients in the cefepime tanaborbactam group and in 58% of patients in the mirapenem group. Cefepime tanaborbactam was superior to mirapenem regarding the primary outcome of both microbiologic and clinical success. Treatment difference, 12.6 percentage points. Differences in treatment response were sustained at late follow-up, trial days 28 to 35, when cefepime tanaborbactam had higher composite success and clinical success. Adverse events occurred in 35.5% and 29% of patients in the cefepime tanaborbactam group and the mirapenem group, respectively with headache, diarrhea, constipation, hypertension, and nausea the most frequently reported. The frequency of serious adverse events was similar in the two groups, 2% and 1.8%. Cefepime tanaborbactam was superior to meropenem for the treatment of complicated UTI that included acute pyelonephritis with a safety profile similar to that of meropenem. High-dose enzyme replacement therapy, rituximab, and early hematopoietic stem cell transplantation in an infant with Wallman's disease by Siawash Eskandari from the Beatrix Children's Hospital, Groningen, the Netherlands, and co-authors. Wallman's disease, a severe form of lysosomal acid lipase deficiency, leads to pathologic lipid accumulation in the liver and gut that, without treatment, is fatal in infancy. Although continued enzyme replacement therapy in combination with dietary fat restriction prolongs life, its therapeutic effect may wane over time. Allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplantation offers a more definitive solution but carries a high risk of death. In this report, the authors describe an infant with Wallman's disease who received high-dose enzyme replacement therapy together with dietary fat restriction and rituximab-based B-cell depletion as a bridge to early hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. At 32 months, the infant was independent of enzyme replacement therapy and disease-free with 100% donor chimerism in the peripheral blood. Treatment-Resistant Depression in Older Adults A review article by David Steffens from the University of Connecticut School of Medicine, Farmington. 
Mood disorders, including major depression, persistent depressive disorder, also known as dysthymia, and subsyndromal depression, are common among older adults and are associated with poor health outcomes and poor quality of life. Response to initial antidepressant treatment in clinical trials involving older persons varies from 35 to 73 percent. Factors related to poor response and treatment-resistant depression include chronic medical conditions, presence of cerebrovascular disease, coexisting anxiety, concomitant chronic dysthymia, substance abuse, and bereavement. A commonly accepted definition of treatment-resistant depression is a lack of improvement despite adequate trials of two different classes of antidepressants for at least eight weeks. Assessment of treatment-resistant depression includes screening for coexisting medical and psychiatric conditions. Measurement-based co-management of care shared by a primary care provider and a psychiatrist or psychotherapist, or both, and with the use of validated instruments, such as the nine-item patient health questionnaire, are recommended for the management of depression with continuous monitoring and adjustment of treatment until remission is reached and sustained. The best evidence for a pharmacologic approach to the management of treatment-resistant depression rests on augmentation strategies, such as the use of second-generation antipsychotic agents, lithium, or another antidepressant agent, or a switch to a different class of agent. Referral for a psychiatric evaluation for consideration of electroconvulsive shock therapy or other treatment is recommended for patients with severe depression, worsening suicidal ideation, psychosis, or coexisting cognitive impairment. Bechet's Syndrome, a review article by David Sadoun from the Sorbonne Université Assistance Publique Hôpitaux de Paris, France and co-authors. Bechet syndrome is a chronic, multi-system, inflammatory condition with a relapsing and remitting course. This disorder has been increasingly recognized as a syndrome because it has a broad spectrum of signs and symptoms, each with distinct prognostic implications for a patient's quality of life, and is associated with substantial morbidity and even death. Over the past 20 years, several discoveries have reshaped our understanding of Bechet's syndrome, and it is currently classified as a primary systemic vasculitis affecting veins and arteries of any size. Overall, Bechet's syndrome can be characterized on the basis of its manifestations, which affect the skin, mucosa, joints, eyes, vascular system, central nervous system, and gastrointestinal tract. Recurrent oral ulceration, a hallmark of Bechet's syndrome, is the most common clinical manifestation, followed by genital ulcers, papulopustular lesions, and nodular skin lesions. Up to a third of patients present with only these manifestations throughout the course of their illness. Major organ involvement in Bechet's syndrome is predictive of both illness severity and death. Given the heterogeneous clinical manifestations of Bechet syndrome and the variable disease course among patients, individualized multidisciplinary treatment is warranted. 
The overall goal is prompt control of inflammation in order to prevent relapses and irreversible organ damage. In this review, the authors examine the most relevant and recent developments regarding the epidemiology, pathogenesis, and clinical expression of Bechet syndrome, as well as the differential diagnosis and emerging targeted therapeutics. A 36-year-old man with fevers. A case record of the Massachusetts General Hospital by Eric Meyerowitz and colleagues. A 36-year-old man was evaluated in the infectious diseases clinic because of fevers. Eighteen days earlier, the patient began to have a sensation of swelling in his throat. Three days later, the temporal temperature measured at home was 38.4 degrees Celsius. The patient was evaluated in a local urgent care clinic, where he was told that there were white spots on his tonsils. Treatment with amoxicillin clavulanic acid was started for a presumptive diagnosis of streptococcal pharyngitis. A throat culture was reportedly negative, but treatment with amoxicillin clavulanic acid was continued. During the next four days, fevers persisted and headaches developed. Repeated home tests for SARS-CoV-2 antigen were negative. The patient was evaluated by his primary care physician. An extensive workup was unrevealing. During the next six days, daily fevers and headaches continued and fatigue developed. The patient was referred to the Infectious Diseases Clinic for further evaluation. During evaluation, the heart rate was 130 beats per minute, there was no fever, and thyroid tissue was palpable in the anterior portion of the neck. Cardiac examination revealed tachycardia with a regular rhythm and no murmurs. Markers of inflammation were elevated. Although the patient was initially treated for exudative pharyngitis, the clinical syndrome was most consistent with subacute thyroiditis. Subacute thyroiditis is associated with numerous preceding viral triggers, although the exact trigger is often unknown. Patients with subacute thyroiditis classically present with a preceding upper respiratory illness, thyrotoxicosis, and thyroid pain that may start in one lobe and migrate to the other lobe with radiation to the jaw or ear. Fever is present in 28% of patients. Ethical Issues in Providing Care in Safety Net Health Systems, a Perspective on the Fundamentals of Medical Ethics by Dave Chokshi from the City College of New York and Frederick Cerise from Parkland Health System, Dallas. Ms. M., a 55-year-old Spanish-speaking street vendor, wakes up one morning and is terrified to find the room spinning around her. She is rushed by ambulance to a nonprofit hospital where she receives care for an acute stroke caused by untreated hypertension, mitral stenosis, and atrial fibrillation. Because she is an undocumented immigrant and uninsured, she is told at discharge to follow up at a nearby safety net health system for cardiology and neurology care, as well as for rehabilitation. Safety net health systems provide essential care to people who are uninsured, underinsured, or low income. Their fundamental mission is to serve patients like Ms. M, who have limited access to health care services. 
This mission, within a context of constrained resources, shapes the most salient ethical issues faced by safety net clinicians and leaders, as well as by the broader healthcare ecosystem. In safety net systems, resource constraints mean that the outlay for each patient's care must be measured against its opportunity costs. Various ethical frameworks could guide such decisions about resource allocation and management. Utilitarianism, or consequentialism, for example, argues that limited resources should be allocated so as to maximize the health benefits for the population served. Under another framework, targeted universalism, Organizations would seek an ethical balance by setting universal goals while allocating resources in a more targeted way, based upon how different groups are situated within structures, culture, and across geographies to obtain the universal goal. In thinking about Ms. M's case, we should also consider the moral obligations of the rest of the healthcare system to support the safety net. Given its essential role, the ethical principle of solidarity, more commonly invoked outside the United States, captures this mutuality of obligation. Patients like Ms. M and broader communities benefit when safety net health systems are empowered with resources and by means of policy to fulfill their mission. Secondary cancers after chimeric antigen receptor T cell therapy, a perspective by Nicole Verdun and Peter Marks from the Food and Drug Administration, Silver Spring, Maryland. Since the first CAR T cell therapy was approved in 2017, they have become important treatments for relapsed or refractory hematologic cancers. And the six products involving autologous CAR T cells that have been approved in the United States now cover a range of indications spanning relapsed or refractory B cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia, B cell non-Hodgkin's lymphomas. And multiple myeloma. In addition, numerous autologous and allogeneic CAR T products are in development. The demonstrated efficacy of the current generation of approved CAR T products comes along with several well-described safety concerns that are noted in the products labeling. Including risks of cytokine release syndrome, immune effector cell-associated neurotoxicity syndrome, various forms of cytopenia, and hypogammaglobulinemia. As of December 31, 2023, the FDA had become aware of 22 cases of T-cell cancers that occurred after treatment with CAR T products. Such cancers have included T-cell lymphoma, T-cell large granular lymphocytosis, peripheral T-cell lymphoma, and cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. In three cases for which genetic sequencing has been performed to date, the CAR transgene was detected in the malignant clone, which indicates that the CAR T product was most likely involved in the development of the T-cell cancer. For now, secondary T cell cancers occurring after the use of CAR T cells for the treatment of relapsed or refractory hematologic cancers appear to be relatively rare adverse events. 
It is important for clinicians caring for people who have received CAR T-cells to report the occurrence of any new cancer. At this time, the FDA recommends that patients and clinical trial participants who receive treatment with these products be monitored for new cancers for the rest of their lives. Since, owing to the relatively recent widespread introduction of CAR-T products into clinical care, we don't yet know how long after treatment people remain at risk for these adverse events. If a new cancer occurs after treatment with one of these products, clinicians should contact the manufacturer to report the event and obtain instructions on the collection of patient samples for testing for the presence of the CAR transgene. Clinicians are also encouraged to report such T-cell cancers to the FDA by contacting them at 1-800-FDA-1088 or visiting the website for their medical product safety reporting program at fda.gov medwatch. But my white count. A perspective by Robin Colgrove from Mount Auburn Hospital, Cambridge, Massachusetts. I'm worried about my white blood cells, might seem an odd response to the query, how are you feeling today? But Dr. Colgrove has increasingly encountered it, or some similar lament, during his rounds, as patients pore over their lab data in real time, logged in nonstop to the hospital's online patient portal. It might make more sense were he a hematologist, but as an infectious diseases doctor, Dr. Colgrove is much more concerned with the ups and downs of malaise, feverishness, and ruber-collar-dolar tumor than the daily numerology of the complete blood count. It's not just patients, either. When Dr. Colgrove responds to consult requests and asks, how sick do they seem to you? One of the most common first responses from ordering clinicians is a recitation of the white count. The white count is up. Should we broaden antibiotics? Is perennially near the top of the list of questions Dr. Colgrove is asked to address. Consulting medical teams nearly always follow his antibiotic recommendations, no matter how idiosyncratic they may seem. But recommending that they stop checking white cell counts on stable inpatients seems to strike them as beyond the pale. Much of this trend is driven, Dr. Colgrove believes, by the quantitative fallacy, the human tendency to attach too much weight to factors that are easy to measure and not enough weight to more complex, hard-to-quantify variables. This inclination induces doctors and patients alike to obsess over the crisp, objective, but highly nonspecific assessment of leukocytosis, while eschewing the seemingly squishy but highly informative subjective impression of severity of illness as felt or seen by the patient, their family, and the treating clinical teams. Squishy and non-quantitative though it may be, Dr. Colgrove still finds the most informative initial probe to be the simple query. So, how are you feeling? In our images in clinical medicine, a 39-year-old woman presented with a four-year history of fatigue and progressively worsening dysphagia to solids. Physical examination revealed conjunctival pallor and coilonychia. Laboratory tests showed severe iron deficiency anemia, and upper endoscopy revealed two esophageal strictures. 
a subsequent barium swallow study identified two esophageal webs, asymmetric membranes, protruding into the lumen of the esophagus, causing the strictures. A diagnosis of Plummer-Vincent syndrome, a triad of iron deficiency anemia, dysphagia, and esophageal webs was made. Treatment with intravenous iron supplementation was initiated. After three months of iron therapy, the patient's dysphagia and anemia had resolved. In another image, a 42-year-old woman in Spain presented with a 10-day history of symmetric exanthema in her axillary, abdominal, and inguinal regions. One and a half weeks before the onset of the rash, she had started taking dexketoprofen, a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, NSAID, at a dose of 25 milligrams per day to treat knee pain. The appearance of the rash and the patient's use of an NSAID led to a diagnosis of symmetric drug-related intertriginous and flexural exanthema. Triggers include the use of beta-lactam agents, macrolides, and NSAIDs. A course of topical glucocorticoids was initiated, and the dexketoprofen was discontinued. One month later, the patient's rash had abated. This concludes our summary. Let us know what you think about our podcast. Any comments or suggestions may be sent to audio at nejm.org. Thank you for listening.